Hello and welcome back to the British Elections podcast in which we're currently looking at the British general election of 1950. This is the fourth episode of the series and we're now two weeks before polling day on Thursday the 9th of February. The election date is the 23rd of February so we've got two weeks to go. In previous episodes the parties have released their manifestos, the leadership of the parties has begun touring the country and in the case of the Labour leadership Mr and Mrs Attlee have set off on their thousand mile road tour of Britain. This episode we're in the business end of the campaign and it's dominated by two major interventions from the Conservative leader Winston Churchill. We're going to also have a look at the party election radio broadcasts that took place. Most of them took place during um, this period that we're looking at this week. So before I get going with the narrative on the episode, um, I want to make a comment on gender politics, um, which was quite rare at the 1950 election. Uh, Lady Astor, who was a former Conservative MP, she'd sat in the House until 1945 when she'd been defeated, and Helena Normanton Casey spoke at an event on women in politics. Lady Astor said that the last crop of female MPs had been a major disappointment. She said that they failed miserably in raising issues such as equal pay and had put party loyalties ahead of their principles. Normanton, meanwhile, said that women MPs didn't seem to be concentrating on big issues, especially ones that were relevant to women. And she said the most important of all was that of being peace. At the less attractive end of the spectrum on coverage in women in politics comes this shocker of a headline from The Express. Pat the Redhead gets a big cheer. Patricia Hornsby-Smith, who was the Conservative candidate for the marginal seat of Chislehurst, was introduced by Leo Amory as being, quotes, easy on the eye. Oh dear. Hornsby-Smith was hailed by The Express as having a great future in the Conservative Party. But meanwhile, a few miles up the road from Chislehurst at Dartford, in fact, and as yet unnoticed by the natural, uh, national press, was a certain Miss Roberts who was making her debut as a Conservative candidate. And if you're not sure who Miss Roberts are, if I tell you her first names were Margaret and Hilda, we'll come back to her at another point. So back to our narrative and back to Mr Churchill. He had a very different campaigning operation from Mr Attlee. As we saw in the previous episode, the Prime Minister chose to campaign by a driving tour of the country where he would make six or seven speeches a day and attempt to meet as, um, visit as many marginal constituencies as possible. Churchill, on the other hand, adopted a much more US presidential style of campaigning. He preferred to make large set-piece speeches in big cities. It was at two of these events, one at Plymouth on the 9th of February and then at Edinburgh on the 15th of February, where major interventions by the Tory leader really shook up the campaign. The Plymouth one was an important event in its own right, as Winston had come to the city to support another Churchill, his son Randolph, who was challenging the Labour incumbent Michael Foote in the Plymouth-Devonport division. The weekend prior, the Australian government had confirmed that it would deration petrol, and this annoyed the UK government greatly, as it would inevitably mean the Australian government would have a greater demand for dollars. And since the Australian pound, as it was the pound then, was a full part of the sterling area, it would, be, it would potentially be a draw on UK reserves, uh, which had to cover the whole of the sterling zone. 
The new centre-right government in Australia, the coalition, had countered that it needed petrol to develop its vast territories, and in any case, it had greatly increased its commodity exports to the dollar zone, and so it felt it had a reasonable claim to draw more dollars from the general dollar pool. A sort of standoff had resulted with the Aussie government making veiled threats through surrogates that the Australians might dollarise their economy. Um, should the Chancellor Sir Stafford Cripps push hard to back too hard against their plans. Churchill decided that this was his moment to go for what he thought was the jugular vein, and he inserted a vague but very ob- obvious suggestion in his Plymouth speech. He said, He couldn't make promises because we've been denied the facts, but when you consider the enormous amount of petrol produced in the Stirling area, that we are one of the few countries in which petrol is still rationed. It may therefore soon be possible to greatly increase the basic petrol ration. Kaboom! The petrol is there, screamed the Express. Tories would increase the basic ration, it, it reassured its readers. Even the Manchester Guardian was initially relatively upbeat, running with the headline, Mr Churchill's Petrol Hope. Former World War II minister, uh, who was the Minister for Oil, Geoffrey Lloyd, uh, chimed in, saying that there was enough petrol in UK-controlled sources for petrol to be de-rationed. Conservative spokesmen continued to cautiously push out the message, Oliver Stanley saying Churchill was right to look at petrol. He said that the fuel minister lived in a false world where motor cars are only owned by the rich. The government clearly sensed that this was going to be really damaging for them. Not only defeated West Germany, but now also Australia was derationing petrol. Would this imply to the voters that they were either too incompetent or had some sort of grudge against private motor cars? With this in mind, the backlash to Churchill's speech was immense, and perhaps by overreacting as much as they did, government spokesmen showed that it was a bit of a weak point. Attlee, polite as ever, said that Mr Churchill was merely trying to window dress and that it was easy to see that the Tory leader hadn't given more than a moment's thought to the matter, since more oil would mean less food. Gateskill, then economics minister, tried to hint that the government was very much on the case on the matter of petrol. He said that there were ongoing talks with Washington about supplies. He warned that if petrol was derationed, it would cost six shillings and seven pence a gallon, up from two shillings and threepence that the basic ration cost today, i.e. it would more than double. He said that petrol was five shillings and eightpence in Germany, and four shillings and fourpence in Norway. Imagine being the civil servant that had to not only calculate the exchange rate between um, German marks and Norwegian crown, but also then convert uh, litres into gallons, and then convert it into pounds, shillings and pence. It must be a rather difficult calculation, uh, perhaps uh, with the aid of some slide rules, uh, since there were no calculators at the time. Shinwell was much less polite. He said that Churchill was a garrulous old gentleman, a modern-day Columbus. He added that the government would rather keep motorists short than cause a shortage of commodity imports that would close factories and throw workers onto the streets. Sir Stafford Cripps, the Chancellor, said that Churchill's petrol stunt was one of the most irresponsible ever at an election. Later in the week, Cripps called Churchill a gutter snipe. The old man, he said, was pathetic and had never had the slightest appreciation of peacetime economics. 
There's a red card for Brendan Bracken, who responded that Cripps was using the same language on Churchill as Goebbels. Well, at least it wasn't Hitler, but nonetheless, it's a red card. Meanwhile, a Mirror editorial entitled The Stunt said that it was so nakedly disgraceful that anyone with more care for Britain than party would be shocked by it. The paper's correspondent, Harold Hutchinson, said that the Stirling Zone was only two-thirds self-sufficient in oil. One-third had to be imported from the dollar zone. In order to cover the gap of derationing petrol, we would have to sell an additional 50,000 cars to the dollar zone, or it could be achieved by cutting tobacco imports entirely, and that would be daft. Hmm, not sure about that one actually, but there we are. The Manchester Guardian felt that the Labour Party had overdone their response. Mr Churchill, it said, has been lucky about the mess from ministers over his petrol kite, but it warned he's sailing too close to the wind. The Times said that the violent reaction of the Chancellor might lend colour to the idea that a Labour government is indeed prejudiced against the private motorist. In case you're wondering, um, there was no actual violent reaction. It, the, the term seems to be used metaphorically at the 1950, uh, in the 1950s rather than literally. If you talked about a violent reaction now, you'd assume that Cripps had thumped Churchill or something like that. A bit of language change there. So it's very difficult to say in terms of um, votes what the what impact the Churchill petrol intervention had. As I've said in the previous episode, there was only one poll series, um, and that reported every Monday in the Daily Express, having taken the sample up to the previous weekend. The poll released on Monday the 13th of February showed that Labour had gained one percentage point, they'd gone up from 44 to 45, and were now tied with the Conservatives at exactly 45%. So on the face of it, no material impact. And you really just can't be sure with such limited information. What we can infer from the polling at this point is that there does appear to have been a movement back towards the incumbent government from mid-January. Then there were a couple of prints in that polling series with the Conservatives about 6 to 8 percentage points ahead. But at this point we've just had two prints where the two parties are essentially neck and neck. So it's not really clear um, what caused it and why. Um, H.G. Nicholas in the 1950 Nuffield study, which I mentioned last week, concluded that while Churchill couldn't be entirely acquitted of making a stunt, the petrol row was very useful in highlighting the difference in approaches of the two parties, and it showed the electorate that there was a choice to be made. On the same day as Churchill's Plymouth speech, Aniron Bevan was also in town. Like the Tory leader, the health secretary was a fiery speaker and attracted great crowds, as well as plenty of press copy from his speeches. He spoke to a crowd of over 3,000 people in Plymouth in support of his friend and fellow left-winger Michael Foote, who, as I mentioned before, was being challenged by Churchill Jr. Unlike the Tory leader's event, which was invitation only, the health secretary spoke to anyone who wished to attend and was almost always met with hecklers. He shouted at the hecklers that if they thought that coal was too expensive, they should go down the mines themselves and cut it for their, for their own family. Earlier in the month, he'd filmed theatres in the north with major speeches in Liverpool, Bury, and Oldham, and clashed with Conservative voters as he went. At Oldham, he said that, that, that he'd been a victim of a personal calumny never before aimed at a minister, and he was now the new villain of politics, the successor of Harold Lasky, who'd been the Tories' target at the previous election. 
On the 12th of February, at a packed meeting in Bristol, there was so much noise he threatened to leave the meeting before saying that the loudmouth jackasses in the room wouldn't count on the 23rd of February. On the evening of the 15th of February, Churchill made another big speech, this time in Edinburgh, and it finally injected some foreign policy into the campaign, and it was argued by Labour that this was the second stunt of the election. Churchill accused the government of failing on foreign policy, especially on relations with the Soviet Union, and that this was extremely dangerous in the light of the fact that the USSR was now a nuclear power. He was particularly scathing of the Prime Minister failing to hold bilateral meetings with the Soviet leadership. He said that if he was returned, he was going to go to see the Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, and he, he called for a return of the Big Three meetings that had taken place during the war. He said that the UK Prime Minister, President Truman, should get together with the Soviet leader to discuss peace and what should be done about the threat of ever more powerful weapons such as the hydrogen bomb. He said that the UK committed a series of defence and foreign policy blunders, including selling some of our first jet aircraft to Argentina, and he said that the government's failure to build the UK's own atomic bomb um, was a huge mistake. Actually, what we now know is that the UK was in fact very close to its first A-bomb. Um, Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevin said in Cabinet that we need such a, a, a bomb with a Union Jack on it. But Churchill may not have known that. If he did, it was even more irresponsible, but I, I suspect he actually didn't know. Reaction to the Edinburgh speech was very supportive from the Tory press. The Daily Telegraph said it was certainly not a stunt. The public were right to be concerned about the extent to which the UK had fallen behind in the atomic arms race, and that Mr Churchill was quite right to bring it up. The Manchester Guardian was a bit more cautious, saying that the Tory leader sounded a bit naive in saying, make me PM and I will get in touch with Stalin to bring matters to a head. The Times said that whatever the final verdict on Churchill's Edinburgh speech, it had at least brought the most important subject of all into the political arena. Peace mattered more than full employment. It said that there was an interesting difference between Churchill's suggestion of direct talks and the aim of a grand bargain with Stalin than the current approach favoured by Attlee and the US Secretary of State Dean Akerson. The latter pair had gone for a UN-led approach and for issue-by-issue issue talks rather than this grand bargain approach favoured by Churchill. But the Times warned that Churchill's Yalta and Potsdam records were not all that successful. American reaction was mixed, depending on who you believe. The Manchester Guardian reported that the US administration was extremely cautious about Churchill's plans, as it thought the Soviet leader was likely to rebuff them. The Express claimed support from a Republican senator for Churchill's talks proposals, and it said that the UN boss, Trigvi Lee, was in support of talks between the powers on the A-bomb. Labour were furious, and as H.G. Nicholas says in the Nuffield study, this was the point of the campaign at which the fever chart reached its high point. The fever chart used to have a chart, uh, people in hospital who had high temperatures had a, a, a chart at the end of their bed with the temperature, so this was the perhaps 102 Fahrenheit or whatever. Herbert Morrison said that Churchill had been vague and irresponsible, and that if elected, he would hand any negotiations in a flamboyant manner, uh, when what was needed was patience and care. The UK public could trust Ernie, the Foreign Secretary, on this matter. 
Ernie himself, who seemed strangely absent from the campaign, said that the Churchill speech was a stunt. He said that he always sought to go through the United Nations on this important issue. Attlee, who by then was on the return leg of his tour, on the days where Churchill's speech was at its, uh, the reaction to Churchill's speech was at its high point. He was speaking at Newcastle, Gateshead and York. And he said that Mr Churchill was a master of words, but there were rarely anything behind them. He said that Churchill raised these great issues at election time, but had rarely bothered to turn up in the House of Commons to discuss them. He said that on the A-bomb, it was he, Churchill, who had made the agreements with the US. And there's a red card for the Secretary of State for Scotland, Arthur Woodburn, who said that Churchill lived in a world full of furors. Boo. Labour's messaging had been thrown off the front pages by Churchill's interventions, but the party continued to attempt its domestic agenda when not responding to Tory leader speeches. Labour's deputy leader, Herbert Morrison, stressed the importance that consumer rights would play in a re-elected Labour government. Invited to make a pitch in the Daily Mirror, the three spokesmen for the parties were able to do so, and Morrison's was by far the best, the other two are extremely vague. Morrison focused on Labour's plans for a new consumer agency which would crack down on poor quality or fraudulent goods. He repeated Labour's promises to reduce household costs by cutting middlemen out of retail chains. He said that the best way to keep costs down in the long term was to increase production. He said that Labour had been hugely successful in increasing output and that this would be Labour's top priority. So at this point I want to look at the party broadcasts which the parties then made on radio. There were no broadcasts on television. There was then just one BBC channel, and it was only available in the most populous areas of the country. And so it was on the radio where the parties had to make their pitch. From the 4th to the 18th of February, the major parties had four um, broadcasts of 20 to 30 minutes. The Liberals had one. Um, and each of which were made on the BBC Home Service at 9.15pm and repeated on the Light programme, the other BBC radio channel, an hour later. Churchill and Attlee closed the cycle on Friday the 17th and Saturday the 18th, respectively. Uh, We'll talk about those ones in a future episode, but I want to focus on the ones that were were done in the, the, the first two weeks. So the Liberals had a further two short broadcasts and there was one communist broadcast, but they were featured at less favourable times and so they had much lower audiences. Now, bizarrely, other than these, the BBC banned all domestic election and political news on its two radio channels and TV service. And some some might wish that this were the case now. But anyway, it made the news bulletins seem extremely peculiar. And because you could talk about North Korea, but you couldn't talk about um, anything to do with the, uh, the British election. The Nuffield study compiled the BBC audience data for the broadcasts, and it strongly suggests that unlike now, the broadcasts were actually of considerable interest to the public, with around a third to half of the adult public listening to the 9.15, 10.15 broadcasts. Churchill's final broadcast scored 51%, and Attlee's was second at 44%. We'll look at the final pitches from the leaders in the next episode. So probably the most memorable and perhaps most controversial of the broadcasts was the one of Dr. Charles Hill, the radio doctor, whom I introduced in the introductory episode about Labour's record in government. 
Hill, by 1950, was standing as a Liberal and Conservative in Luton, which Labour had grabbed on a 20% swing in 1945, and so Hill was facing more than a 7,000 majority to overturn. The Times described Hill, who'd been a regular broadcast for many years, as the perfect choice for a political address on the radio, mixing a measure of reasonable friendliness, but with some veiled but cutting criticisms on Labour and their own broadcasts. Hill said that nationalised industry bosses were pocketing very large salaries and attacked Labour's mutualisation plan on the insurers, something that had not attracted very much copy during the campaign. There was also a veiled implication that the government was looking at taking control of policyholders' cash, a comment the Labour-supporting Daily Herald described as a malicious savings scare. Hill said that the Tories supported the NHS and that, in fact, it was their ideas that had helped with its establishment. It's sometimes said that the best method of dealing with provocations is not to be provoked, but as one might expect, government spokesmen didn't take this advice, and the NHS comments unsurprisingly caused particular outrage. George Tomlinson said that the radio doctor had become a political quack, Harold Wilson, then a cabinet minister, said that Hill's NHS comments showed Hill was trying to be the radio comedian instead of the radio doctor, and Bevan himself said that Dr Hill had been the ringleader against the NHS. The Daily Express praised the broadcast, saying it would help win the election for the Tories. Both parties made sure that at least one of their broadcasts would have a female speaker. Although neither had a female cabinet or shadow cabinet member at the time of the election, Labour chose a female MP, Peggy Herbison, at the, she was the MP for Lanark, whom the Daily Herald enthusiastically billed as, quote, the miner's little sister. Sounds a little bit nauseating. Uh, the uh, Spectator then, the Conservative um, supporting newspaper, described her as a lightweight. She asked open questions to the Tories, demanding to know what exactly would happen if they cut food subsidies, would they promise to compensate pensioners and recipients of family allowances in full? On the Conservative side, Florence Horsborough was a former MP but who had been out of the House of Commons in the 1945-50 to Parliament. She was much more forthright than Herbison in her attacks on the other side. She accused local authorities and nationalised industries, uh, then dominated by Labour, of bullying workers to vote for the Labour Party and saying that prices were so high that people were giving some of their ration coupons away because they couldn't afford to use them all. Her key point was on housing, though, and that raised an issue which had been hot at the start of the campaign but had faded away a little bit since. She said that the Tories and Labour both agreed there was a housing crisis, so the question was what to do about it. She said that the Conservatives would do a much better job by allowing the private sector and local authorities to just get on with it. Central government should get out of the way. The Conservatives would help you own your own home if you wanted to do so, she said. Horsburgh was later to make history as the first female Conservative cabinet minister. The other two broadcasts on the Conservative side in these two weeks were Anthony Eden, the deputy leader, and Lord Walton, the party chairman. Both spoke on a number of areas of the campaign. In general, the broadcasts tended to make a comprehensive um, review of the, of the campaign and all the issues. Both Walton and Eden attacked Labour's nationalisation plans, particularly on the cement industry. 
Eden made sure that foreign policy, which was his area as a former foreign secretary, was well featured on his broadcast. He said that in this dangerous era of atomic weapons and the nightmare of communism in Asia, that the public could rest assured that if the Conservatives were elected, they would use their experience to bring about better international relations. The Daily Herald in particular was put about by Eden's broadcast. It said that whilst there was never more a likeable and reasonable Tory than Eden, the statements that he had made were full of such serious a misrepresentation that it could have been made by the most extremist of Tories. Walton, on the other hand, focused on the cost of living, and as the wartime minister, he had plenty of experience in this, a wartime minister for food, and so was an obvious choice for this topic. The Times praised Walton's broadcasts, and his general adroit campaigning. It concluded that the Conservative broadcasts had been much better than Labour. Spectator said that Charles Hill was always going to be a natural behind the microphone, but that Lord Walton had also taken to it. On the Labour side, Jim Griffiths made a broadcast reminding listeners of the horrors of unemployment in the interwar years. The Nuffield study describes it as a broadcast of great emotional appeal, with the flavour of Welsh speech and the warmth of Welsh oratory. Herbert Morrison, meanwhile, made a more workaday speech, slamming Churchill's attention to detail. He said, Between ourselves, anything concerned with economics just isn't up his street. As Theresa May would say, Remind you of anybody? Labour's final speaker, other than Attlee, was the Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan, and he spent most of his speech on foreign policy, particularly defending his record. But he also failed to really engage with Churchill's attacks from two days earlier. Bevan, as a former leader of the Tea and uh, Transport and General Workers Union, finished his address appealing to trade union solidarity with the Labour Party. The Conservative supporting spectators called uh, Bevan's speech much too heavy, and the Times described it as a disappointment. Clement Davis, the Liberal leader, got his broadcast slot on Thursday the 16th, as the campaign reached the one-week-to-go mark. It's sometimes difficult to believe that Davis is actually present and taking part in the election at all, with almost all the limelight taken by other members of the party, particularly Lord Samuel, who's their former leader, elderly former leader by then, their whip Frank Byers, and the two great ladies of the party, Lady Violet and Lady Meghan, Asquith and Lloyd George's daughters. In his broadcast, Mr Davis said that for once the Tories had got it right. They were using the word liberal in their names and literature because they know of its appeal to the public. He said that the Liberal Party was the enemy of both privilege and dictatorship. It was the only party that was not a class party, and it was for all the people. The penultimate week of the campaign saw relatively little other news, if you like, interfering with the election coverage, although the Express and the Mirror were excited about Elizabeth Taylor's third marriage. In one issue of the Mirror, however, four crime stories almost pushed politics off the front page, including a story about a man found with a gorilla's head. Liverpool University announced it was building the world's biggest cyclotron. No, I've got no idea either. Foreign news included the build-up to and confirmation of the Sino-Soviet Treaty, in which the latter returned Manchuria to communist China. 
There was also coverage of the trial of British businessman Edgar Sanders, whom the Hungarian communist government accused of spying. On Thursday the 16th, the Prime Minister made his last stop on the 1,000-mile tour at St Albans. He'd come down the A6 this time on the way home. Both party leaders now had to prepare for their final broadcasts, which were due on the 18th and 19th of February to close the campaign. So that's the end of this episode. We are now um, less than a week to go until the general election. Um, and I hope you've in- I hope you enjoyed the episode and you've got a flavour of the kinder and gentle gentler politics of the 1950 election. So in the next episode, I'm going to do the final week of the election. What were the party's final pitches? And what did the newspapers recommend their readers do? And then in the episode after that, I'm going to discuss how the results came in. The It was actually very exciting. It, the results came in over two days and the outcome of the election was very unclear until the last uh, minute on uh, on the Friday. Uh, And then after that, I'm going to discuss um, what happened and why and do a bit of an analysis of the voting. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please uh, tweet about it. Or uh, as I say, this is an independent podcast. So any help in spreading the word or giving it a review or five stars or whatever you want to do um, would be much appreciated. Thank you very much.